study of Ephesians. We're now in chapter 5. It's on page 829 if you're using the Pew Bible. And there's a sermon outline on pages 10 and 11 in the bulletin. We'll be in Ephesians for a couple more weeks here. Then we'll break for a series in Advent for, uh, for four weeks. And then we'll get back in Ephesians into the new year. We remember that the book was originally a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. Paul is probably in prison in Rome in this time. And it was sent as a circular letter to go to other churches in the area as well. As we get back to the letter, it's important for us just to remember for a minute the context where we are in chapter 5. The first three chapters of Ephesians give us this sweeping picture of what God has done for all who are in Christ. And then the last three chapters of the book give us a picture of what life now looks like for a believer in Christ. So first we hear this great drama of the gospel. And then we get more specific instructions about how to live and what to do to live a gospel-driven life. We're told of the free and gracious work of God on our behalf, accomplished for us in Christ. And then we're shown what it means to look like, to live a life according to that life that's given us. The the key verse in the transition is in chapter 4, verse 1. Where Paul writes, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And then that theme, to live, or literally it means to walk, is, conti- is repeated multiple times in chapters 4 and 5 to make it clear that this is a very practical section teaching us how to live. These sections assume that the audience of the letter are believers who are seeking, again, to live faithful and godly lives and who need encouragement and who need instruction to know how to live the new life that has been given to them. So it's critical that we see this passage and the moral instructions with it in the context of the gospel and the whole book. In chapter 4, we saw, as Pastor Steve led us, we saw this pattern of putting off and putting on. The metaphor changes a bit in chapter 5. We'll see that it's about light and darkness. And today we'll talk about what it means to live in light of the light of Christ. So read with me from Ephesians 5. Uh, We'll start in verse 3. It's a long passage. I may have bitten off more than we can chew today, but we'll trust that the Lord will work through it. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 3. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse jesting, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them." For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Please pray with me. Father, again, we do thank you for your word. We pray that you would teach us through it 
this morning. We need your help, as always. So we ask for your presence through your spirit to guide and direct and to lead us into truth. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the last battle, which is the final book of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, we encounter a group of dwarves who, at the very critical hour, if you've read the story of the final battle between good and evil, these dwarves decide that the dwarves are for the dwarves. They won't give their allegiance anymore to the king of Narnia, or to Aslan the lion, or to Tash, this false god of the enemy people. The dwarves are for the dwarves. That becomes their refrain. We're for ourselves and our own people. As the story goes, this group of dwarves goes into this kind of gateway into Aslan's country, along with the heroes of the story, Lucy and Eustace and Peter and all of the rest. They come out of the land of Narnia through this sort of magical door into this beautiful place that's full of sunlight and radiance. Yet the dwarves can't or don't open their eyes to see all that is around them. They're convinced that they're still in deep darkness of their old world, unable to see. The pleadings of the children, the words of Aslan are garbled and misunderstood by these miserable dwarves as being threats and growls. They're offered this rich banquet of food, but they perceive it to be hay and straw as they eat it and they spit it out and it doesn't taste good to them and they fight with one another and all who would seek to show them their miserable plight. The dwarves are for the dwarves really means that they will not believe anyone else, that they will remain stubbornly convinced of the darkness around them and of the miserable state that they are in and that they won't turn to the light and open their eyes. In the end, if you remember the story, these dwarves are left behind in this self-imposed place of squalor as the children and the believing animals follow Aslan further up and further in to the better and yet ever better still lands for all of eternity. C.S. Lewis, of course, is using a biblical metaphor of light and darkness to tell this part of the tale, that darkness is disorienting for these dwarves. They can't truly distinguish their surroundings. They can't see the food, the speech of others, the invitation to eternal joy and satisfaction. They love the darkness and the blindness, and they can't imagine life in the light. We know how disorienting that physical darkness can be, that kind of real darkness when you can't see your hand in front of your face. It's disorienting. It's confusing. It's frightening. This is the kind of darkness that's in view here in this passage, but in a spiritual sense. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is contrasting the darkness of the natural, godless human condition with the light which comes from Christ, which shines in and through the lives of his people. Verses 3 to 5 begin to describe for us the characteristics of darkness in the natural human condition. But among you, Paul writes, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ 
and of God. Paul has three things here. There uh, previously mentioned some of them in chapter 4 about sensuality and impurity in verse 19 of chapter 4, the sins of speech in verse 29 of chapter 4, but with a, a further description here in this passage, he lists first sexual immorality and any kind of impurity. When taking the two words together, we see this is a comprehensive description covering all kinds of sexual sins. Rather than listing them discreetly and specifically, he covers them all under this broad description of sexual immorality and impurity. So adultery, fornication, lust, homosexual behavior, prostitution, pornography, the whole list, the whole gambit of human sexual brokenness is is in view here. The Bible, of course, has a very clear sexual ethic from front to back, which was as unpopular in Paul's day as it is in ours. According to the Bible, God's good gift of sexual expression has only one healthy and fulfilling context, heterosexual monogamous marriage. That's God's design. That's the way he made us. That's the way he made people. And so Paul is faithfully declaring what the Bible teaches elsewhere, that all other sexual practices are incompatible with life as God designed designed it. And so like so many of God's good gifts, human sinfulness distorts the good by promoting and marketing destructive counterfeits. Second, Paul mentions greed or covetousness. Do not covet, of course, is the tenth of the Ten Commandments. It's the wanting of that which is not yours, being unsatisfied with what you have. As Paul lists these sins, he lists them the three in verse 3, and then again in verse 5, he makes explicit that greed is idolatry, that greed is worshiping another god because of being unsatisfied with the true and living God's care for you. Third, Paul writes in verse 4 that obscenity, foolish talk, and coarse joking are out of place among God's people. We can spend a lot of time here. It isn't easy, perhaps, to try to define and distinguish exactly what this means. What kinds of joking is okay? What is funny? What is inappropriate? How do you know when you've crossed the line? As believers and as people, we all have different standards about humor. What might be appropriate appropriate topics of conversation in one place might not be appropriate in other places. It's difficult to draw a hard and fast line about what is acceptable speech. And also difficult if we, if a person would try to define, to use their line and their standard to use it against or to judge someone else. But the words here are very, are very clear, and then we trust that God will work in us to show us the application of these words. What is obscene or filthy? What is foolish, literally moronic words? Foolish speech, coarse and crude joking. Those things are out of place among God's people. And thus, in obedience to the Lord, we seek to live and act accordingly and ask God to guide us to make wise decisions about what we should watch and what we shouldn't watch, what we should say and what we shouldn't say. And while, again, we may not be able to define all of the specifics, we get the principle here, right? Words have power. What we say is important. 
Remember the playground rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's absolutely not true. The Bible is clear that words have power to create reality, to build others up or to tear them down, to sow doubt and discord and disunity among people, to harden hearts, to crush another's per- another person's spirit or their self-esteem. In God's world, words are powerful. So rather than unhelpful, degrading, and foolish speech, Paul reminds us in this verse instead to respond with thanksgiving, a key to contentment and also a weapon against greed, right, is remembering what we're thankful for and reminding ourselves by what we say. Verse 5 presents us with a bit of a difficulty here. It says, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Taken sort of at face value, it seems to be saying that these specific kinds of sins or sinners will not inherit the kingdom of God. Are these the sins only of the unbelieving world who aren't in the kingdom of God? Well, of course not. People in the church, God's people, struggle yet with sexual temptation, with greed, with unhelpful speech, and with idolatry, as well as every other kind of sin. So what do we make of this? Well, of course, we have to remember the context of the passage of Ephesians 1-3 through and the rest of the script, what Scripture so beautifully declares about the gospel. That all who are in Christ, that for us all, Every sin is forgiven, and every kind of sin is forgivable. So the issue isn't one's sin disqualifying him or her from the kingdom. Rather, the issue here, I think, is that a life of sin, that the sinner's identity as an immoral or greedy, idolatrous person, is an indication that that person is not in the kingdom of God. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 6. 9 through 11. Namely, he says, no unrighteous person will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, just taken at face value, we know, of course, that we all fit in that category. But he goes on to say that such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Christ and by the Spirit of God. So, of course, that we live now in this tension. We know we are unrighteous in terms of our experience And we know that we must rely on God to keep from stumbling. While at the same time, the gospel message is that we are now righteous in God's sight, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done and applied to us. And so there's a kind of distinction that's being made here between being and doing, between what you do and who you are. They aren't the same. They may be related. Fools make foolish choices. But making a foolish choice doesn't mean necessarily, it's a bit different than saying that you are a fool. That is being characterized by a life of foolishness and foolish choices, by lifestyle. Similarly, Christians still sin and are truly sinners, while also in God's sight we are holy and righteous. We live in that tension. Our passage here is calling us to seek to keep these two the being and the doing, connected. And that's the idea when we talk about the the word integrity. It means that we live more and more out of who we are, 
that who we are, that our identity drives what we do. And thus, in describing in this passage a gospel-driven life, Paul says, rid yourselves of these things, of sexual immorality and impurity, of greed, of foolish speech, and of idolatry. Those things can't be characteristic of you. Those things aren't part of your new life in Christ, even if you continue to struggle against them in your flesh. Fight against them, remembering who you are in Christ. In this battle, of course, the world will do us no favors. In opposition to God's moral standards, the world thinks that holiness and moral purity and the rest of what's going on here aren't really important. Verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Let no one deceive you, Paul is saying, into thinking that these things aren't a big deal. That sexual immorality and impurity, that greed, that idolatry, that foolish speech, that they're all okay. That it's just the way that people have always lived. The human problem he's describing here is this problem to redefine God's standards with our own empty words. Paul says, don't be deceived by this. That it's a life and death matter. That the wrath of God is coming because of these very things and because of every other kind of sin. We wrestle with these sins and every other kind of sin in the church because the church is full of people. But we don't and we can't... What he's saying here is that we don't and we can't affirm that which provokes the wrath of God. I've heard it said this way, that the church becomes not an agent of salvation, but an agent of damnation if we give approval to what God says is sinful. If we approve and affirm in others what God says is sinful, then what need do they have of Christ and the forgiveness of sins? Those are empty words. I'm not making a political statement. I'm just saying it's a personal one. In the ways in which we are broken, we are hopelessly broken. We're not just slightly bent. It's not just some kind of personality flaw, right? Sin is serious. And it took Christ to the cross to deal with it. Verse 7 indicates that we're also not to partner with those who do these kinds of things. Therefore, it says, do not be partners with them. Again, at face value, this would mean to live in isolation, from everyone else and also ourselves. But the partnering idea here is is going beyond a casual friendship. The term is used in in chapter 3, verse 6, in a positive way, to be a partaker, a partner, a sharer in the gospel, one who is intimately connected to. And so Paul in this verse is teaching us not to share, not to partner in an unbelieving lifestyle, that these things would be characteristic of us. Rather, we're called to live out of who we are in Christ, verses 8 and 9. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases 
Lord. Paul here connects who you are in Christ, light in the Lord, with what you do. Live as children of the light in positive and life-giving kinds of ways. So the basis of a Christian's good works is to seek to live in integrity. That what we do is reflected, is a reflection of who we are and who we are being made to be in Christ because of what he has done. God cares about the moral holiness and the purity of his people because he loves his people. Because it's good for us to obey his commands. And verse 10 reminds us that we're to seek out what pleases the Lord. It's not always obvious to us, even though it's clearly defined for us in Scripture. Even though God has given us this book of Revelation. It tells us exactly what to do and how to live and how to please him. Paul says it's in verse 10, it's not intuitive, but it's something that we have to seek out and seek after. The contrast in the next verses, in verses uh, starting in verse 11, is the fruitfulness of the light, what is good and right and true, with the unfruitfulness of darkness. Verse 11 have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Light has a positive role to expose what is hidden to display that which is shameful, unfruitful. Sin loves to stay in the darkness. It seems like so much of human sinning happens at night and in secret, doesn't it? I don't know exactly how you can quantify this, but if you ever watch any one of those shows with cops and people, you know, everything bad happens at night. I think it's something woven within us that we like the darkness. And so bad things happen at night rather than in the middle of the day so much of the time. Light has the amazing ability to shine into the darkness. A few years ago, we were taking a tour of the um, NASA facility at Goddard, and we were in the Hubble Telescope building. They were showing us around, and they were talking about the Hubble Telescope. Our guide was giving us all of these facts about how powerful the telescope is, how amazing it is. And I'm not sure if my facts are exactly right, but this was the... This is good enough for our illustrative purposes this morning. Don't trust me with all the details. Ask Mike Morosi if you need more questions. Who works there? Uh, he, they said that if the Hubble telescope were in Los Angeles, and we didn't have like the curvature of the Earth and the interference of the atmosphere, if it was out in space, that the Hubble telescope could distinguish between the two headlights of a car in Paris... So two headlights that are shining four feet apart, shining as brightly as normal headlights, could be seen and distinctly seen from the Hubble Space Telescope in Los Angeles if those are in Paris. It's amazing, isn't it? We get stunning pictures from the telescope. Why? Because of the the contrast between the great blackness and darkness of space and the amazing brightness of each star and each celestial body. Light shines more brightly in the darkness. Light makes things visible that would otherwise stay hidden. To make his case here, Paul alludes to various Old Testament ideas sort of put together. 
This isn't a direct quote in verse 14, but it's the synthesizing of what some of what the Old Testament teaches. He says, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There's a picture of wakefulness versus sleeping. There's a picture of life versus death. And in various places in the uh, Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, we get those images that sin puts a person to sleep, that living in sin makes a person dead. Perhaps we all think of different things when we hear the word revival used in a church setting, but this is the real, sort of essential, biblical picture of revival. It's a picture of a sleeper waking up. It's a picture of the dead coming back to life. How does this happen? How does revival happen? What's the context here? It's directly related to this idea of light shining in the darkness, to the exposing of sin. And in the history of the church, there is usually a strong connection between public conviction and confession of sin with a profound embracing of the gospel in terms of a revival, right? Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God, brought people to their knees in conviction of sin in the first great awakening. Conviction of sin and the confession of it then led them to revival, to embrace the gospel anew. If you want to start a revival in the biblical sense, don't put up big tents, don't hire a fire and brimstone preacher, right? Begin by confessing your sin and letting the light shine into your own darkness. This is what I mean. As a college student, there was a series of perhaps what you might call mini revivals that were connected to a campus ministry group that I was a part of. It happened among college students on a number of campuses. It wasn't characterized by anything wacky or boisterous. It began on my campus when a person stood up and really began to confess her sins. And others, too, began to confess their sins, the things that they really didn't want anyone else to know, the things that were deep and weighing on them. And they prayed with each other. Students and staff, broken by their sin, truly praying together and asking God and one another for forgiveness. And wonderful things happened. It was a unique work of God's Spirit. It lasted maybe a few weeks, kind of among this sort of semi-small group of people. But lives were really changed. And students whose Christian lives were on autopilot, they woke up. They were revived. They, They embraced the gospel again and experienced a deeper work of God in their lives. We cover a lot of ground in this passage today. How do we summarize, perhaps, what connects to us today? Paul's summary statement is in verses 15 and 16. Be very careful, then, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Be careful, then, how you live. Life happens in small and everyday decisions. Mostly, we don't face dramatic and life-changing choices every day. Instead, and even more, we're called to be careful about the everyday. Part of the perspective of these verses and that we find in the New Testament is that time is a limited commodity. The New Testament has a sort of eschatological, an end times kind of perspective. Not in a sky is falling kind of way, 
But in a, we don't know the number of our days. And the time is short. The days are evil. Recently, I read a biography of a mostly unknown but very faithful and effective Baptist pastor, a missionary. He was named Tom Carson. He was a missionary and pastor in Quebec, and he's the father of D.A. Carson, the famous New Testament professor who teaches at Trinity Divinity School in Chicago. As a young man in the 1930s, Tom Carson was working full-time. He was serving also uh, part-time in the church in various ways. He was doing some seminary classes on the side. He was pondering his future. He was praying, should I pursue vocational ministry? He wasn't sure what to do. He was chatting with an older mentor, a mature believer in the church. The young man was complaining, there just isn't enough time to minister and to work and to study and do that all, all that I want to do. And his mentor said to him this very simply, Tom, you have all the time there is. You have all the time there is. And soon he went to seminary, and that was the encouragement that he needed. We all know the feeling of too busy and not enough time, of being squeezed by life and hardly able to dig out and make it through the week. You have all the time there is. Everyone has the same amount of time in God's world. There isn't a way to make any more time, and there isn't anything to be gained by complaining about it. That's what this wise man was saying. Therefore, this passage calls us to be careful about how we use our time and to seek wisdom from God that we would use it purposefully. And of course, in this way, God promises to provide for us. Wisdom is needed in all situations, and God gives us the Proverbs and the Scripture specifically to help us grow in wisdom. And God promises in James 1.5 that if we ask Him for wisdom, that He'll give it to us. God promises to meet all our needs, even as he says to us, as he calls us to seek wisdom. He promises to provide such that we will learn how to live a careful and purposeful life. Be careful how you live. Secondly, I think there's a a cluster of application points here in relation to the seriousness of sin. That God has done a transforming work in us and calls us to live transformed lives, not caught up in sexual immorality, greed, foolish speech, and the other sins, which are destructive, both in the world and in the lives of God's people and in the church. And the burden of this passage is connected to the fact that living in darkness is destructive, but revival and healing happens as we take sin out of the darkness and we expose it to the light. This morning I asked, do you feel um, like you are on Christian autopilot, spiritual autopilot, just coasting along? There could be many biblical reasons for feeling that way. But one of the common reasons, I'm not saying this is your situation exactly, but I'm saying one of the common reasons, and what this passage is teaching us, is that the weight and the snare of unconfessed and hidden sin brings us down and makes us ineffective as believers. And by focusing Christ's light into our brokenness and into our darkness, we find anew the power of the gospel. Part of the way that sin gains and keeps a foothold in our lives is when we hide it, when we protect it, when we don't want anyone else to know. And the shame that it brings continues to bring us down 
in a downward sort of spiral. But conversely, by confessing our sin, not necessarily publicly, but by sharing honestly with another believer that you trust, something that you're really struggling with, something that, you're, something that is a burden to you, by bringing that out into the light and being able to be honest about it with God and with others, is a very effective way to fight against sin and the power of sin. That's what this passage is teaching us. As we close, we hear the simple application of the message. Be very careful how you live. Ask Christ to give you wisdom daily in order to live this life. You have all the time that there is. Consider, too, the darkness that's within. Ask God for the power and the strength that he would shine his gracious and exposing and powerful light into your life. And there you'll find healing, revival, and hope anew in the gospel. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, indeed, we are broken people so much in need of your grace. Father, I do pray that you would be the one at work in our hearts, that you would be the one showing us the error of our ways, and that you would be the one who is exposing the darkness within us, that we wouldn't be trapped there anymore, that we wouldn't live lives of blindness, but that we would live lives full of hope and healing as we confess our sins to you and to others. Revive us, God. We need your help. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.